following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. The reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 1, which can be found on page 58 of the Church Bibles. Page 58. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pura, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for Claire coming to speak to us, and we ask that you will fill her with your spirit anew, 
and that you will speak to us as she speaks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ruth, and a happy new year to you all. The book of Exodus is a long story of a people becoming a nation. It's a story that gets told from the bottom upwards. People without status are given names. People holding all the power remain nameless. It's a story of a people who have known more than a generation of slavery, and they are learning how to be free. It's a story of people learning that true freedom doesn't happen overnight, but comes through struggle and hardship. It comes through laying down the past and learning together who they are through the identity that God gives them, rather than the one that has been imposed upon them. Nelson Mandela, known for uh, being a human rights lawyer and an activist before he was president of South Africa. He was imprisoned for 27 years for his fight against apartheid. He had plenty of time to consider such things, and he concluded that there is no easy walk to freedom anywhere. So this is what we're going to be learning as we journey through the book of Exodus between now and Easter. And the first step on this journey to freedom we're going to explore tonight. The first step to freedom is not an unlocking of a jail door, as Nelson Mandela found out, but the awareness and acknowledgement that what is known is not what is meant to be. Whatever the dominant narrative has been can be interrupted for a new one. And God is the ultimate interrupter of narratives. God interrupts with hope where there is none. Faith where it's been forgotten. Freedom instead of slavery. And love beyond measure. This comes through in our storyteller. Our storyteller is using familiar language to the listeners. Verse 7 echoes that of Genesis 1. The Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The words used in the text are the same. It underlines the point that God's command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth has been fulfilled through Israel. So the storyteller is telling us that this is God, it is his story, he is faithful, and he invites us into his story over and over again. So as we enter this story, we see it's God's story, but we see it's become corrupted and distorted and not quite as God intended. And therefore, God's going to interrupt one narrative so that another can be discovered. Those of you who follow football will know that this weekend has been uh, the weekend the FA Cup becomes rather interesting 
the third round and the weekend the big boys join the competition. The weekend those teams that are usually excluded from matches in the Premier League get to play top players. Often the weekend of upsets. So Aaron will pass swiftly over Aston Villa and Fulham. <laughs> to the delight of discovering the name Aaron Wilbraham. Mr. Wilbraham arrived onto the Rochdale-Newcastle game as a substitute in the second half at the grand old age of 40 years and 75 days. He scored the equaliser, securing a replay for his League One team. He was up against the likes of Joe Lincoln, a 22-year-old striker, whose individual wage could cover the whole of Rochdale's annual wage bill. It's a tale of unequal teams. If you want to uh, put me right on Newcastle's performance at the end, please do. The underdog takes the chance to upset the usual narrative and score against the more dominant, powerful, youthful team. Well, this evening we're looking at two unequal teams, we have Pharaoh with all the might, schemes, money, power of Egypt. Definitely Premier League. And on the opposing team, two women. Much more League One, or in old money, third division. However, just as the king and the Egyptians remain unnamed throughout this story, the midwives are given names, Shifra and Pua. Their status is raised to main players, whilst Pharaoh is diminished. He's diminished not only through lack of name, but lack of wisdom. Psalm 111 tells us that the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Exodus 1 tells us that the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh. This nameless king is not worthy of their obedience in their eyes, because actually he's foolish. He's foolish, firstly, because he seeks to play God through birth control. And secondly, because of the way in which he seeks to control the births. Killing the boys may decrease the fighting force of the Israelites, but it also diminishes his workforce, which is why he has them there in the first place. Neither does it dent their reproductive ability, but rather secures the future of the people of Israel quite nicely, thanks. So Pharaoh is neither wise nor does he fear God. Shifra and Pua, on the other hand, are credited not only in Exodus for their faith in God, but further on in the letter of Hebrews. Because those midwives feared God and knew how to be canny with Pharaoh, God blessed the work of their hands and blessed the people of Israel. And the heroics of the midwives are told down through the generations until they're upheld Hundreds of years later, as women of faith, theirs are the names to have on the back of your shirt. The midwives are used by God to interrupt the dominant narrative. They're bringers of life, gatekeepers of a nation. And the bringers of life work with the giver of life to ensure the life of God's people is protected and sustained. It's a daring act of faith that reckons absolutely on the faithfulness of God. Pharaoh, on the other hand, is the perpetual baddie. 
It's a kind of character in the story that elicits boos and hisses from the listeners whenever he's mentioned. But to fully understand the Pharaoh of Exodus, we have to backtrack a little to the Pharaoh of Genesis 39. This is the Pharaoh that Joseph and his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, had to deal with. The Pharaoh of Genesis fame had an attitude of lack, a scarcity mindset. He had everything he could possibly have wanted, yet wanted more. Regardless of the wealth of Egypt and all the Nile could bring him in terms of the world's trade, this mindset led to anxiety, even giving him nightmares of being devoured. Such anxiety fed his need to accumulate. In years of plenty, he built storehouses for grain and stockpiled so that in years of hardship, he made sure he had enough. More than enough, everyone came to him for handouts, firstly paying him money, then trading their livestock, then eventually themselves. So Pharaoh's scarcity mindset now has him as a slave master, a monopolizer of a people who can no longer call their time, their efforts, skills or lives their own. He's achieved total dominance. Such totalitarian rule is really only a step away from intolerance, violence, paranoia, which is when we meet the next pharaoh. Now, paranoia in anyone robs them of peace. In combination with position, it means, as a political commentator wrote recently, a constant maneuvering to stay in power which gets in the way of doing anything useful. Pharaoh meddles in the lives of the Hebrew people for no good reason except that he's feeling threatened. The Hebrews are too many, they're too strong, they're too wealthy. They're here, why are they here in my land, is Pharaoh's mindset. The trouble with Pharaoh's narrative, it's a small story. It's told through the eyes of less. It's told from the standpoint of entitlement. This Pharaoh from the account has done less than the previous Pharaoh for all his wealth, yet he expects more. He's looking around him, he sees only what he lacks, not what he already has. His anxiety strips him of any joy over what he has, and it fuels him to act defensively. He heads down a destructive route that leads to persecution and oppression and ethnic cleansing. Sadly, this is a story we're all too familiar with today, is it not? The current figures for refugees and forcibly displaced persons stands at 68 and a half million people around the world as they have fled persecution and violence. History repeats itself when we remain blind to the meta-narrative that is God's story of generous and abundant love, of freedom when we live in God's will and not by any of the other narratives that are prevalent around us. Is it possible that a constructive narrative is upheld, a constructed narrative 
is upheld. Because it suits the majority to collude with it, there is no easy walk to freedom because the first step for those in bondage is to recognize that they are not free. Mandela joins the ranks of many who have stood up against corrupt and unjust laws or regimes through the centuries. It is a biblical stance. Now, unlike John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter and James, Paul, so many other followers of Jesus, I have not yet been arrested for my views or for meeting with other Christians or for encouraging people to fear God rather than those who hold authority. Unlike so many of my brothers and sisters in Iran or China or Nigeria or other parts of the world, I have yet to be tortured or imprisoned, deprived of basic human rights, separated from my family. And yet, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells me I'm actually to expect such things. So from the safety of free speech and democratic laws, what can we learn from a people learning to be a free nation under God? What is the narrative that God may be seeking to interrupt here in Durham this year? Well, sometimes it's about taking a long, hard look at ourselves. What are the narratives we believe compared to the narrative of God? Are we colluding with the ways of our culture and our context here? Our society loves to tell us, doesn't it? Do whatever will make you happy as long as no one gets hurt. It's okay. It's not the narrative of God. We're not here to make ourselves happy above all else. We were made to worship God, to live in relationship with him. And it's out of that worship and relationship with God that our joy and our purpose flows. One of the narratives I have heard since arriving here is that there are no jobs in Durham. Well, there may not be jobs in certain sectors, but that isn't the same as no jobs. But if we uphold that narrative that there are no jobs in Durham, then we agree with a negative narrative that there are no prospects for the people who live here. And that if you can, you should get out because it's just the losers that are left. Do we want to be known as people who collude with such a hopeless narrative as that? Or do we want to be known as people who have been faithfully crying out to God for this city? In 2001, a national survey declared Stoke-on-Trent to be the worst place to live in the whole of the UK. A church leader called Lloyd Cook got together with some other church leaders and said, not on our watch. What are we going to do about this? What are we offering instead? It was the start of a united prayer movement across that city that led the churches to stop being so concerned about themselves and what they thought they lacked and much more concerned about their city and how they as churches and Christian people could engage with and display God's mercy for that city. 
Lloyd would be the first person to hold his hands up and say, whole-scale transformation of Stoke is still some way off. But he would add that God starts with his church. God calls his church to repentance, to open its eyes afresh to his narrative. Only from the knees can we look up and see what God would have us see. Part of our vision here as a discipling church focus on the older teenagers in our city. Are we offering them a narrative that speaks hope, love and freedom over them? When we start to pay attention to the narratives around us, such noticing brings risky obligation. The first obligation, surely, is to pray. So what are we praying when we pray for our city? How are we praying for our youth missioners and the teenagers here? Are we praying with a scarcity mindset or from the full knowledge that we follow a God of abundant generosity and love and freedom? Are we ready to listen to the ultimate interrupter and act in faith, reckoning absolutely on the faithfulness of God. I'm hoping that by the end of the year, I can say absolutely, yes, we are that people. We are listening. And this is what God is saying. This is God's narrative for us here, for our city. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.